Hey, Brianna, come here a second, would you? <laughs> you know, I was just thinking that uh, you know a little bit about what you just sang about. Yes. You had a hard time. Yes. When was that? Like maybe a year? Yeah. A year? Um, a little yeah. over a year ago. Yeah. yeah. I was in the hospital for about two weeks. Yeah. And it was a tough thing, it was wasn't tough. it? It was tough. Yeah. <laughs> and so how did, the, did this song resonate with you? Yes, you thought about definitely. that? Um, in good times and bad, God was there. I definitely didn't see him in all things, but, you know, trust and believe that he had the best in mind for me. And I've been able to use my experiences to glorify him. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. So. And now here you're singing about it, yes. too, which is great. So Hopefully thank you for blessing you. us with thank that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank Thanks. you, Deanna. <clears throat> Well, today is our uh, third message from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And uh, we are in a series on the book of 1 Corinthians, and we have kind of planted on this one particular passage, which is one of the key passages in the New Testament that teaches on the judgment seat of Christ. And I would uh, just have to say, based upon many of the responses that I've gotten uh, from our teaching time on this, that uh, for many people, this is, if, if not a new thought, is a, is a renewed thought, and that the Lord has been using it in our church. And I rejoice in that, and that is a great thing. It's a truth that we all need very much. And today, I want God to use this third message, this is our last one, on it. I want him to use it in a way that prepares us for eternity, or as I'm going to say often in this message, to challenge us to live this day in such a way that when we're dead, we're glad we did. We only got today. We don't have tomorrow, but we have this one day, and someday we're going to step into eternity and give an account for our life before the Lord. And so what we do today resonates and echoes in eternity. Are you getting ready for it? Are we as a congregation? So let me just read the passage uh, one last time. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. This is what the Apostle Paul says. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, notice capital D, the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has uh, built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Now, I'm not going to go over everything we've said thus far. Uh, We've had about two hours of teaching on this already. You can get the CD or download it if you'd like and listen to it. But basically what we have talked about and that Paul has brought to us is the fact that there is a coming judgment. In fact, there are two of them. The Bible describes two coming judgments. The one is, is, is called in Revelation the great white throne judgment. 
And this is a judgment for the, for the unredeemed, for those whose sins are not forgiven. And it is a moral judgment at which God will justly and rightly judge sinners for their sins and will condemn them to hell. Which is a truth that we have to speak of with brokenness in our heart and with tremendous sadness. Uh, but this is what the Bible says. So that is a sobering thing. You do not want to be at the great white throne judgment. The other judgment is known as the judgment seat of Christ. And this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. It is not a judgment of condemnation. It is a judgment of commendation. It is a qualitative evaluation from Christ upon our lives and the service, stewardship, suffering, and sacrifice that we offer to him in this life. And he promises that he is going to reward every sacrifice made for him. That there is a kind of a divine evaluation that we are going to go through in the eyes of Christ who will judge impartially with love, total love, but and, and with great generosity, he will judge each one of our lives. I don't stand there with my dad. I don't stand there with my son. I don't stand there with my pastor. I don't stand there with my wife. I am standing before Christ myself, and I will receive either, the Bible, that this text says, I will either receive reward as the quality of my life and service and sacrifice and all the rest are evaluated by him and judged to be uh, worthy of reward, or I will suffer loss, which is what verse 15 says. So there will be some Christians in eternity in this judgment who will be rewarded, and there are some that will not, clearly. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, or what I did in this one life that I have, whether good or evil. So since this is a day that is most assuredly coming, don't you think that we should often think about it and ask ourselves the question, is my life preparing me for this final evaluation? Am I living for things that will matter in the end? Are the things that I am spending my time and that are the passions in my life, are they things that when I stand before Christ that he is going to commend me for? Or am I wasting my life in things that in the end don't matter? And we, cha- we had that challenge last week. Don't waste your life. And how many people sadly do they, we, I say they, we, we fill our lives with things that, that seem that there may be even good things, but they're not the best things. They're not the things that in the end that Christ is looking for or that he wanted us to do. And then saying that, by the way, I am not saying that the only things that matter are reading your Bible and praying and, and being at church and, and serving in some, you know, sort of ministry way. The we have a bigger view of what it means to serve Christ, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Which means that the way that I relate to my wife and the way that I am a father or the way that I am a mother or, or a, uh, an employee or a student or a neighbor or a citizen, that there is nothing in this life that if I do it for Jesus' sake and I do it in His will, that cannot and will not receive a commendation. Which doesn't this, it makes everything sacred, doesn't it? There is nothing in my life that can't, if done 
within the will of God and done for his glory, receive a commendation from Christ, which infuses every dimension of our lives with value and and with a kind of sacredness that means that I should view it as precious. Don't waste your life. Someday we'll stand before the Lord and give an account. And I would like to be a pastor that prepares you for eternity. That's basic. You know, in a way you could say, what's the job of of a pastor or what's the job of the church leadership? We're here to get you ready for eternity. That's pretty much what we're doing. And if you are here, by the way, and you are not a a Christian, we would love to get you ready for eternity too. (laughs) And to help you realize that Jesus Christ is the one that your heart longs for and that he loved you and died for you and for you to come to realize that there is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved than his. And even today, perhaps that could be something that happens. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? That you begin to think about the fact that I'm not going to live forever and I'm going to die. And then what happens to me? And to come to the conclusion that so many of us have, that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and that he died for your sins. In love, he died for your sins. And said, if you will believe in me, I will give to you eternal life. That offer is as true today as it has ever been. That's a great way. In fact, that's the best way to get ready for eternity, truly. Now, I've been asked the question, uh, do we just serve the Lord for the rewards that are in it? And I would say to that, uh, no. The Bible talks about a number of proper motives for serving the Lord, and I would just like to walk through some of them to give a broader context for why we do what we do. Here's one. We serve Jesus because he told us to, or what I call here duty or obedience. If Jesus is is our Savior, then that means that he is also our Lord. And if he is our Lord, then that pretty much settles the matter as to whose life I am living. It is not my life, it it is Christ. So, therefore, I have an obligation to do what he's told me to do. Luke 17, verse 10. Jesus says, so, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Indeed, that is the case. We have an obligation. If Christ is our Lord, we have an obligation to obey him. And it could just simply be that. I mean, it's kind of like parents. You know how this goes when your child says, uh, would you please give me uh, three practical reasons why I should do what you have just told me to do? Your answer is... Was it only my parents? I thought it was all parents. Because I said so. This is why you are to do it. And the parent thinks that settles the child's like, well, I don't know. I'd like a little more rationale. I would like some context for how this could be an obligation for me. And we're like, no, I just, I'm your parent. I told you to do it. And in a way, we could look at it this way. There is a kind of simple obedience that comes with being a Christian. He died for me. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. That's it. All right, I'm going to do what he says. I remember my spiritual uh, mentor, Kimber Kaufman, who for years did lots and lots of marital counseling. He just got fed up with it. You know, the the couple comes in and she's like, he's so blah, 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 blah. And the the, the husband says, oh yeah, well, she's blah, 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 blah. And, And, you know, Kim would just sit there like, and he would just say, all right, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Yeah. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Yeah, 
So, all right, that settles it. This is what you're to do. This is what you're to do. Now get out of here. And that's pretty much how his counseling got to me. He just got fed up with all of it and just said, listen, if he's your Lord, then this is the way that it is. And there is an aspect to that, certainly. But as we often talk about here at Bethel is that it is much more than this. That God is not honored like he can be by our have-tos. He is more honored by our want-tos when what we have to do is what we want to do. And this is what we call here what? Our oblatunity, obligation, opportunity, smash those together, you get oblatunity. It's one of our favorite words. God is honored by our oblatunities when we obey, but we obey because we want to obey him. And this is what I'm calling love. Love. Why do we obey Christ? Because I love him and because he loves me. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that Christ's love compels us. There is a compelling dimension to the fact that Christ would give his life for me, this demonstration of his love on the cross. We can never get over that, can we? We must never get over that, should we? I'm fishing, right? I mean, seriously, I hope you're not over it today. We can never get over the fact that Christ would die for sinners like us. And there is this kind of, oh, we love him back. And now my service is not merely a duty. It is also a delight. It is, and it needs to be, not always. We struggle, not always, but it needs to be a delight where I want to do what he wants me to do. Why? Because I love him. And why do I love him? Because he first loved me, 1 John 4.10. Okay? So, now... 1 Corinthians 13, which is a chapter that we'll get to in a coming decade uh, in our series, talks about how important love is in serving Christ. Here's how it's, what it says. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains. Now, that, if you could do that, that would be pretty impressive, don't you think? But have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, we're talking radical obedience here. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And this is why the greatest commandment is so key in following Christ. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The last thing that we're trying to cultivate here in our church family is a kind of ritualistic, duty-bound following of Christ. No, it is a love following. It is a passion and affection where we want to do what He wants because we love Him. That is a very biblical motive. How's your love today? A third one is, this just follows, to please God. Paul writes that we make it our aim to please him, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. In fact, interestingly enough, verse 9 is right before verse 10, which I just quoted. He goes from the aim to please God to the fact that we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But if you love somebody, you want to please them, don't you? If you love your wife, you want to please her. If you love your children, you want to please them. You love it when they're happy. You serve one another. You bring pleasure. It's a good thing. Similar in my relationship with God. I have a desire to please him. I also have a desire not to displease him. I don't want to make him sad. I want to make him glad. Why? Because I love him. 
And then a fourth one, and this is really, this is the one we're talking about, is reward. Reward. Now I got the question, uh, does doing something for reward strip it of its like virtue. And I, perhaps some of us are struggling with this concept that I would serve the Lord with a view towards the reward that he is going to give me. And here's what I can say is apparently not. Because why else would God fill the New Testament with all of these verses telling us to lay up treasure in heaven and to promise us that he will reward us 100 times as much if we leave father or brother or homes and all the, other, all the rest? Why would God do that if it strips it of its virtue? So apparently it doesn't. It, 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 it adds to the, the rest of these motivations for serving him. Now here's something I, very important to realize about these rewards that God is going to give us. They are not obligations. They are not payments. God is under no obligation whatsoever to give us anything. In fact, anybody that understands the gospel would be pretty much satisfied with the fact that he's given us his son, don't you think? I would say that that probably was, if that was all, and I put that in quotes because all is like, but if that was all that he gave us, we ought to be good to go for the rest of our lives. Okay, that's, don't, you don't give, need to give me anything else that is more than enough. But he, in his generosity and in his love, piles on all of these other promises of future reward that go beyond the cross. They're not payments, but they are expressions of love from our God because he is a generous, generous king. So these rewards are a statement of his generosity, not of our deserving of it or any, any kind of obligation. It's a statement of the kind of God that we're serving and the kind of Savior that died for us. And it just gives us another reason, don't you think, to love him. Amen? Okay. I'm up here wailing away, flailing my arms. I'm hoping that it's connecting with you. Indeed, we should love him for these things and many more. Now, what I want to talk with you today about is a dilemma that this whole eternal reward thing creates. And uh, perhaps you've not considered this. Uh, some of you maybe, maybe have. Uh, but there is a dilemma that this creates. Here it is. If every Christian is completely happy in heaven or in eternity, how is it that those with rewards are more happy I mean, does it seem fair to you if you have Joe Schmo Christian who doesn't give up hardly anything for Jesus, puts little effort into serving him or her, her serving him in his life, that there is little effort put forth. He just sort of, you know, floats along and waits for, uh, you know, for eternity where he gets eternal life. And he steps into eternity, and eternity is the same for him as for the person who uh, is very committed in their walk with the Lord, dedicates tons of time and energy and resources to God's work, goes out and suffers in, in tremendous ways in, for the kingdom of God, and he steps into eternity, and those two have the same eternity. Now, because to me, that doesn't seem fair. And it's not fair in the economy of God. 
And this is where the rewards kind of come in to say, where God says, listen, I am going to, this is what 1 Corinthians 3 is saying, those that have served well, they shall get a great reward, and those that do not will suffer loss. In other words, eternity is not going to be the same for everyone. There will be some with reward, and there will be some that are not. Now, in saying that, here's the dilemma. Everyone is completely happy. And see, now this is a thorny paradox, isn't it? How is everybody completely happy, and yet some are more happy? See, it's going to be fun, isn't it, to wrestle with this. But I think it's going to motivate us to be maximally happy. And I want to talk with you how to get there. All right. So if eternity is not the same for all Christians, how do we bring these things together? Now, clearly there is much about eternity that we do not know or understand. And so as we come to this, we are seeing through the glass darkly. We need to come to it with humility because we don't totally get it. But the Bible teaches First of all, that everyone is completely happy. Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So to be in the presence of God and to have that beatific vision, as the, as the theologians talk about, is the ultimate human experience. It is the ultimate human ecstasy to see the glory of God. There will be none that will be anything less than fully happy. For sure. However, the Bible also teaches that there are different levels of honor in eternity. For example, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, You are going to sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, verse 28. All but one of the disciples died martyrs for Christ. Great shall be their reward. Indeed, they will sit on thrones. Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And then Revelation 22 verses 4 and 5, they will see his face. This is, by the way, the last description at the end of Revelation describing what eternity is going to be like. So if you're a Christian here, this is like, this is our future. Here's what it says. They will see his face and that's going to be great. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So somehow, and again, we approach this with humility, but somehow the rewards that these treasures, these rewards that God is promising to us will mean various levels of distinction and honor in eternity. Some will have great honor, some will not. And somehow in that, we are going to reign with Christ. And I don't know exactly what that means. I believe it's going to be on the new earth, that there's going to be levels of authority and levels of honor, and these will will be based upon our lives before the Lord. But how do we bring these two things together? How can people be fully, everyone's completely happy, but some are more happy? Here's what I would suggest to you, is that our service in this life, suffering in the path of obedience, 
stewardship of all the resources and opportunities that God gives to us. That these grow our love for Christ in this life. And don't you know that to be the case? I mean, isn't it? I just had Brianna up here. I just, I didn't plan on this, but it comes to my mind right now. I just had Brianna up here. What did you go through? I went through this trial and it was a thing and this is the fruit of it. And on the other side of the trial, she has a greater love for Christ and a greater understanding of how she can depend upon God for the things that she needs. It grew her love for God. And this is what our serving and our suffering and, and the sacrifices that we make and the things that we do for Christ, they grow our hearts and our love. And that love is the capacity context for the rewards that God gives to us. Did I say that very well? I mean, it's on the screen. A better sort of succinct statement is there. But what we do in this life is creating a capacity for joy in Jesus. The greater I treasure Christ in this life, I step into eternity with a greater capacity for God to fill me with complete joy. So, here's the deal. As we serve him in this life, we are preparing ourselves for what God will give us in eternity. Great service, great suffering, great sacrifice, great stewardship grows the capacity Little service, little sacrifice, little suffering, little stewardship shrinks the capacity. And then we die, and we step into eternity, and God makes us fully happy. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There's some kind of a measure, there's a kind of balance that God gives based upon our lives here. And that is then the context for our joy in eternity. All right. To illustrate this this week, you've been, or this weekend, you've been sitting here going, what on earth are those glasses up there for? This is an illustration, and sometimes I do these kind of illustrations because you have a way of remembering these. So, I have here on the uh, table, I have three glasses. I have a shot glass. And I will not tell you who I got that from. I have a medium-sized glass. And then I have what uh, all would have to describe as a very large glass. All right. I also have here a hose. And this hose is connected to a hot water heater, I think, somewhere in the back. And that hot water heater is connected to pipes, and those pipes, I believe, somehow are connected to Lake Michigan. So, to just grow the analogy, Lake Michigan's a pretty big reservoir, don't you think? Yes. So, here is what, here's what I think happens, an illustration of it, is that our lives are growing a kind of glass, a capacity of love for Christ. This glass symbolizes the person who, they don't really do much for the Lord. They are the, uh, the suffer loss, 1 Corinthians ten fifteen individual. 
And so they live for comfort, they live for convenience, they never want to do anything that's going to cost them anything or be trouble or anything like that. They never take any risk for Jesus, they never, they never uh, really uh, uh, sacrifice on the path to, uh, to following Christ. And so they die and they step into eternity. And guess what God does? Tops them off. Okay, there you go, you're fully happy. This glass symbolizes the person who does some things, and maybe there were times in their life when they uh, were really kind of getting radical for Jesus, and they were wanting to, to, to grow, and they were loving people around them, and they were, they were uh, doing involved in ministry in different ways, and they were just being trying to do their very best to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so they die, and they step into eternity, and God tops them off. Now, I got to tell you, last night, something very funny happened. <laughs> last night, when I was filling this glass, and I just got off this big speech about how it's all connected to Lake Michigan, this incredible reservoir, I'm filling the glass, and the water goes, pew. <laughs> I'm like, what happened? The place died laughing at me, not with me. It was uh, bad. So anyway, God, God tops it off. says, there you go. Now, it's fizzing, so I won't top it off, but you get the idea. You're fully happy. There you go. And then you have this person. Now, to me, this person is somebody who was faithful for a long time to the Lord. That they were not perfect. There's nobody that's perfect. But in their life, they thought carefully about living for what matters in eternity. They were strategic with their time. They were strategic with the gifts that God gave to them. And they just, they prayerfully did their very best over their life to serve the Lord. And as I said last week, this person is probably not anybody that you've ever heard of. You know, we think these are the the, the famous Christians. These are the the big name people. No, I think it's going to be, the people like this in eternity are going to be people that you've never heard of. And they serve faithfully in in a faraway place or in some strange way. And God... Remember, the hose didn't work last night, so I've never done this before. God. You get the idea. God. God tops them off. And to me, this is, this is what we're doing right now. This is our lives. My life is either uh, growing my capacity, my love for Christ, which God then gives to me uh, in joy in eternity, or it is shrinking my glass. Service of Christ and suffering for him and, and, and going into hard places and doing inconvenient ministry in the name of Jesus grows my glass capacity. Sin and comfort loving and, and just sort of sitting back and letting others do things, not, not, not reaching out in love to my neighbor, not, not uh, uh, using my gift that the Holy Spirit gave to me to serve, not being involved in the kingdom work shrinks my glass. Everybody is completely happy in heaven, but some are more happy. Some have more joy. And remember, I want to prepare you for eternity. I want to get you ready for that day. And the way that this is going to happen is by growing it. And it seems to me that this ought to change the way that we look at many of the things and opportunities in our life. 
like when God brings a trial into my life and I'm like, no, no. In reality, what is happening is I struggle with that trial. I am learning to trust God more. And it is growing my heart. Even if in the moment I don't like it, it is growing my heart for Christ. And when I'm here and there is an opportunity that I just say, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to step out and I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to do it in Jesus' name. And I'm going to go out and I do that. And it's hard and it's sweaty and it's difficult. What am I doing with that? I am growing my heart for Christ. It seems to me that kingdom people that get this, they would, we would all be clamoring for the hard thing. We, we would see the hard thing as a better thing because in the end it gives me more joy in Jesus. As opposed to what is so often the case, especially in American Christianity, where we aspire to the convenient thing and to the easy thing and the thing that in the, on the other side of it didn't cost us anything. It is the things that cost us and hurt us and stretch us that God is expanding our heart for. And he wants to do that. Why? Because he wants to give us a great reward. And why does he want to give us a great reward? Because he loves us and he is a generous king. So, what size glass might you be growing in your life? What is going to be the capacity of your love or the joy that you can even take in in eternity? All right. Now, I'm going to do something I've never done before. And I've been here a long time. I really want us to get this. And... I have another illustration. Remember, this is an application message, our third message on this passage. I have another illustration of how this works. I, uh, I've written a short story that I would like to read to you that illustrates what we're talking about here. And so I'd like for all of you to put on that elementary student hat Remember how your teacher would read you a story and it would capture your imagination and you loved it so much? Let's try to get that here. And I'll try to do my best in telling the story. Uh, so, are you with me? Okay. Are you with me? Okay. There once was a master who owned a very large estate. Go ahead and put that up. Now, last night... I put this up, and I kept reading, and everyone just stared at the picture. So the picture is not going to change. That's it. Take a good look at it. Do not be fascinated by the picture. What you see is what you're getting, okay? Okay, so you've seen it. Now you can dial in on the story. In fact, I'll start again. How's that? There once was a master who owned a very large estate. His estate was located close to a debtor's prison. The prison was for those whose debts were so large they could not repay them. Over the years, the master hired servants for his estate from the debtor's prison by personally paying off their debts. He would give them a home on his estate and a job suited to their skills. He gave all his servants the same opportunity to work and labor in the sprawling estate. He provided for all their needs and told them that they would all be rewarded for their faithful work someday. 
word around the place was that the master was going to permanently leave the estate. Nobody knew for sure or what that would mean. The other important figure at the estate was the master's son. The master loved his son very much. This was obvious throughout the estate because it was filled with portraits and pictures and paintings of the master's son. Everyone on the estate knew the son, and the son knew them. Every day he walked the grounds, greeted the servants, and tried to encourage them in their work. Time passed. Then one day, as had been rumored, the master and his son permanently left the estate. After all this time, the workers were eager to discover what their reward would be. His lawyer gathered all the workers to tell them what the master's final wishes were. The lawyer announced that the master wanted them to continue to work on the estate. As a reward for their service, he was bestowing upon his servants every picture and painting of his son scattered throughout the estate. Big and small, paint and stencil, each servant would receive one portrait. He also announced that the master had set a schedule when each servant was to leave the estate. At that time, they could choose their favorite portrait and take it with them. There was stunned silence in the room. Some were disheartened as this was not at all the reward that they were expecting or wanting. During their years of serving, they were not too concerned about pleasing the master or his son. Sure, they put forth some effort, particularly when the son or others were watching, but mostly they spent their time relaxing in the nicer sections of the estate. They and their friends were almost like a little club to themselves. Every once in a while, they'd pool their money and send it to workers in rougher sections of the estate. However, their real passion was enjoying the comforts and luxuries available on the sprawling estate. Among them was Lonnie Smith. As he processed what the lawyer said, he felt dismayed. Lonnie figured when his time came to leave, he picked the smallest and most conveniently carried photo of the master's son he could find. No reason to burden himself with a big frame or a heavy picture. Others at the assembly were surprised and quite happy about this. You see, they loved the artwork of the son around the estate because over time, they had come to deeply love and admire the master's son. But what picture to choose, they wondered. Susan Winters had always loved the portrait of the son in the dining room. He looked so courageous in it. Whenever she was working in the dining room, it motivated her to do the best she could. Old Tom Parker th uh, thought about the life-size portrait of the son in the grand entryway. When he came to work discouraged, he would often walk, walk past it and stare. The master's son looked so strong in that picture that Tom thought, since he's around here, what do I have to be afraid of? He got through lots of hard days while his wife struggled with cancer, just letting that picture remind him of the strength of the master's son. Then there was Rosie Johnson. Rosie worked in a dark corner of the mansion's basement. Her job was doing the laundry. She didn't get out much as the laundry required constant attention. In fact, most people in the estate didn't even recognize her or acknowledge her work. They were glad for the clean towels and linens, but they didn't give much thought to where they came from. Yet Rosie served faithfully year in and year out. 
When the announcement was made that they would be allowed to take a picture of their choice, she knew immediately which one would be hers. You see, before Rosie came to the master's estate, she had slaved away in the laundry pit at the debtor's prison. She despised everything about being there and hated everyone around her. She was filled with bitterness and anger. But one day, the warden came to Rosie and told her that someone cared enough for her to buy her out of the debtor's prison. She was dumbfounded. Who would give money for someone like her? As she stepped out of the dark prison, she met for the first time the master and his son. They hugged her and told her that they loved her and always had. The son said, I have something very special I want you to do. I want you to use your ability to do laundry and help make our estate beautiful. Will you do this for us? Rosie would never forget how happy she was to be out of the prison and to be personally serving such a wonderful master and his son. She did think to herself, I love those men. I will do my best for them. Several years after leaving the debtor's prison and serving in the basement laundry, Rosie discovered in a dark corner of the basement a hidden storage room. Since she was the only one who went down there, she was the only one who knew the treasure she had found there. In that dusty room, Rosie discovered a mirror. At first, she thought it was just a big old dusty mirror and put it away. Years later, she looked at it again. A strange thing was happening. As she saw herself in the mirror, she could just faintly see, almost like a hologram, the subtle image of the master's son in the mirror. It spooked her, and she put it away quickly, thinking she'd never look again. But sometime later, after a very hard thing happened in her life, Rosie went and looked at that mirror again. Strangely, she saw her face, but now even more clearly in her face, she also saw the face of the master's son. Similar to how a child can look like her mom and her dad at the same time. Disturbed, she put it away. But over the years, she continued to serve faithfully in that basement laundry. And she would sneak a look at the mirror, and she would see less and less of her reflection and more and more of the master's son. In fact, it actually looked less like a mirror and more like a portrait of the master's son all the time. She came to love that frame, because the less she saw of herself in it, the more she saw of the son. Time continued to pass. Slowly, workers were called to leave the estate according to the master's schedule. The workers wondered what it was like on the other side of the tall walls. They wished someone uh, who left would shout over the walls and let them know what it was like there, but they never did. Then one day, Susan Winters, Tom Parker, Lonnie Smith, and Rosie Johnson were all summoned to leave the estate at the same time. What are the chances of that, huh? They were told to leave everything behind, select their favorite picture of the master's son, and go to the gate. Like all the others before them, they felt anxiety about what awaited them on the other side of the walls of the estate. Susan rushed to the dining room and carefully removed the courageous painting of the son that had given her courage as well. Tom Parker stood in the vast entry of the mansion and gazed one last time at the life-size portrait. With effort, he took it down and headed for the gate. Lonnie Smith 
simply dropped his things, picked up the smallest photo of the sun he could find as he sauntered toward the exit. And Rosie Johnson tiptoed down the dark steps of the basement one last time. She hoped after all these years, no one had secretly taken the mirror from the hidden closet. She smiled as she found it and looked one last time. By now, there was no reflection of her at all in the frame. The mirror looked entirely like a portrait. She struggled as it was quite large and too big for an old woman, but the adrenaline of being summoned and leaving the estate helped her lug the mirror all the way to the gate. Susan, Tom, Lonnie, and Rosie each took a deep breath and stepped through the door. They were shocked at what they found on the other side. It was another estate. Like the old one, only better, brighter, somehow happier. Something strange began to happen with the pictures they held. The larger and heavier the picture was, the larger and heavier it got. The lighter and smaller the picture was, it got even lighter and smaller still. Kind of like how a number multiplies and gets bigger and a fraction multiplies and gets smaller. As their eyes adjusted, who was standing before them but their old master and his son? But now they seem so different as well, healthy, vibrant, glowing with energy and joy. The master answered their bewilderment by telling them that no one on the estate dies. They just leave the old one and come to the new one. The next thing that happened was also shocking. Would you like to know what it was? The master said, bring to me my picture of my son. Susan Winter stepped forward with hers, unsure as to what all this meant. The master looked at the courage picture and said, I love this picture and I love that you do too. I will now give to you 1,000 times the weight of this portrait in gold. Susan gasped. It was a very heavy picture and she was only a laborer after all. Why are you giving this to me? She asked. The master said, I am rewarding you according to your love for my son. In your love for him, you brought a big picture and great will be your reward. Tom Parker stepped forward with his life-size painting. The master laughed with delight to see it again. I remember the day I put it in the entry, he said. I have always loved this picture. Thank you for loving my son and his portrait too. Tom was stunned. The scale reported a gold value he couldn't even calculate. He was filled with joy. Lonnie Smith was excited. Now was his chance. After years of living for comfort on the old estate, he hoped for more of the same in the new. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the wallet-sized photo of the master's son he had brought. The master frowned. There was an awkward silence. The master's son kicked at the ground. Finally, the master said, Is this all you brought? I'm afraid so, Lonnie replied. But can I still get what Tom got? The master said, Like all the others, you will be fully rewarded according to your love for my son. Of course, faithful service on my estate, sacrifices of time and energy, were all designed by me to increase your love for my son. 
I did this so that when you left, you'd bring a big picture because I love to give a big reward. But Lonnie, you live for convenience and personal comfort, and they don't produce love for my son. The picture you brought will be the measure of your reward and happiness in the new estate because here it's all about him. And he pointed fondly at the son. With his reward in hand, Lonnie stepped into, his newest, into the new estate fully happy, but with less happiness than Tom and Susan. Finally, Rosie stepped forward. Everyone knows mirrors are heavy, but after stepping through the gate, this mirror weighed more than she could move. It took many others' assistance to put her picture on the scale. As the scale hummed to calculate the weight and reward, the master winked at the sun. The sun beamed with happiness. When the final tally was announced, you could hear gasps and cheers from all over the estate. Everyone was thrilled for Rosie, but none more than the master and his son. You have been a good and faithful servant, Rosie. Thank you for serving me in the basement laundry. We had the cleanest linens to be found anywhere. Now great shall be your reward. Rosie didn't know what to say. How could a laundry girl and an ex-con like her be the recipient of so much reward and joy? She finally said, I have to ask you, over the years, why did the mirror turn into a portrait of the sun? The master's son said, that's just it, dear one. All the pictures in the estate actually were not pictures at all. They all were mirrors. The more you loved me and served me, the more the mirror looked like a portrait of me. As Susan found her hope in me, the reflection of my courage was seen in the mirror. As Tom found strength in who I was for him in his trial, my strength was portrayed and seen in the mirror. This was even true for Lonnie, only in his case, he allowed so little of who I am to be formed in him, all he could ever see around the estate was little pictures. But you, my good and faithful servant, you have been true to me. Great shall be your reward. Welcome to my eternal kingdom. The end. Now, my thought... Uh, right now goes to the disciples who, after Jesus told a parable, would often say, what was that about? So I don't know if you uh, got the analogy or not, but this is the point. Our lives that we are living today are creating a context for reward and joy in eternity. So what's the point? It's the same point as last week. Don't waste your life. You have one life. You have today. You don't know if you have tomorrow. You can't change what you did this last week. You have one life. Don't waste it on things that don't matter. And there are a thousand things in this world, many of them good things in and of themselves, but they're not the best things. 
Give your time and your energy and sacrifice and service for the best things and do it for Jesus' sake and great will be your reward. Why? Because great will be our love for Christ. And this is what God is developing in us. Romans 8, he is conforming us to the likeness of his son so that our lives, like the mirror, are increasingly portraits of who Christ is. And the greater the clarity of that and the greater the size of that, the greater the reward will be one day. And my dear friend, if you are here and you are in a trial and you're wondering, why is this happening to me? And you resent the fact that it's there or you resent God or you resent the person who's in your life. Might this not create a, 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 a change in perspective a why this is happening and to see that God is not doing it because he hates you. He is doing it because he loves you and he wants to give you a big reward. So be faithful in it and persevere in it and trust God in it. And those of you that are maybe thinking about getting involved in the kingdom of God work in some way, you want to be involved in the community ministry or maybe something within our church context, or maybe you just want to go across the street to your neighbor in some kind of act of love and to develop a relationship with him or her, whatever it is. And you're wondering, why should I do that? I don't know. It's so, it's so um, difficult. It's so awkward. Let this be a motivation for doing it. It creates love for Christ. And the more love we have and the greater the resemblance to Christ, the greater our reward will be. And someday, and I don't know how exactly how this works, but I, if God allows me to sort of as the pastor of, the Bethelon, of all the Bethelonians to kind of stand there and to watch as you, one by one, stand before Christ and give an account for your life, it is my heart's desire truly that each of you would receive a great reward and to be commended by the king of glory jesus himself nothing will make me happier but that is dependent upon how we live today and what kind of church we are and how we love one another and our unity and our witness and our service and our sacrifice so today is the day to do the things that create the context for joy and happiness someday and like i began this message i want to say it to you again live today in such a way that when you're dead you're glad you did Do it, and great will be your reward. Let's stand together for prayer.